Take your Bibles this morning, open them to Luke chapter 2, Luke 2, 25, we'll actually go through verse 38 this morning, looking at the wonderful testimony of Christ. And this passage this morning is the conclusion of the infancy narratives that we have spent so much time looking at over the last several months. This is the last report of the early life of Christ. Technically, verses 39 and 40, Luke will wrap up the infancy narratives, but this is the last report that he gives us of Christ's life, action, and things going on in his life. And you'll notice uh, there hasn't been a whole lot of detail, has there? We, might, we may have spent a lot of time here, but the Bible and the Gospel writers don't record much about the early life of Christ. In fact, Luke has just told us about his first day or his first week of life. He's told us about the eighth day of his life. And in this passage, we look at the 40th day of his life. Only 40 days really covered by the gospel account. So not every detail in the life of Christ has been uh, recorded for us in Scripture. But nonetheless, these that have been recorded have been fruitful for us and beneficial for us. So we come to this conclusion of the infancy narratives of the infancy time of Christ's life again with another familiar theme of God using two ordinary and common people to testify to who Jesus is. That's something we've seen all throughout Luke chapter 1 and chapter 2. He uses Zechariah and Elizabeth. He uses Mary and Joseph and even others in the early parts of Christ's life that are common people. Humble people. They're not the high priest. They're not the country's leaders. They're not people of influence and power. Zechariah, in fact, is the one who has the most status and standing as a priest himself. But nonetheless, he is humbled by Elizabeth's barrenness. He has no children of his own. So all the people that God has used in the coming of Christ into the earth have been people of humble origin. And that theme's continued here with Two people that we know that we're familiar with, Simeon and Anna. And so kind of what we've seen all throughout thus far, many religious people have failed to recognize and they've failed to hear the message of Christ being born. But to those who are humble before God and faithful to him, God has made this message known. And they've been given the privilege, Simeon and Anna this morning, the privilege of testifying to the person of Christ. I've been given such a high honor in the passage that we're going to read and study this morning. But before we get to it, I want to ask you three questions that help our minds and our hearts focus into the point of this passage, to the point of what Simeon and even Luke as the author is trying to communicate to us, the readers. And this would be uh, the question, the, the three questions. What is it about Simeon's testimony of Jesus that one, makes Simeon ask for death, that two, makes Anna come to life and praise God, and three, makes Mary and Joseph marvel? Those are three kind of instances that happen in this passage. There are many themes we could pull out in this passage, but these are three instances that point us right back to the heart of 
of what Simeon's trying to say. So let me repeat these questions. What is it about Simeon's testimony of Jesus that makes one, Simeon ask for death, two, makes Anna come to life and praise God, and three, makes Mary and Joseph marvel about Christ? What is it that Simeon has to say about Jesus that causes these reactions in these four people? That causes such a change, such an impact in their heart. That's what I hope we will bring out and see in the passage this morning. So let's look there in Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 25. And we'll read what Luke reports to us. He says in verse 25, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was eighty-four. She did not depart from the temple worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. We start in this passage, and Luke starts in this passage, lining out for us the person of Simeon. So let's look at what Luke has to report about him. And you'll notice He doesn't report his credentials. He reports his character to us. Luke's not concerned with Simeon's status. He's concerned with his faithfulness. Again, that's the theme that's been brought out through Luke's Gospel thus far. It's not about their position or their influence or their wealth of God's servants. It matters their heart and their faithfulness whether or not God's going to allow them to enjoy the blessing of being used by Him. That's been true all throughout Luke's gospel thus far, and true again of Simeon. So Luke is reporting to us not his credentials, but his character. And he mentions four things about the person of Simeon that we want to highlight this morning. All four of them are found there in verse 25. The first thing he says about Simeon is that he was a righteous man. A righteous man. And the way Luke uses it here, it refers both to his right standing before men and his right standing before God. He is a man who is 
right with men. A man of integrity. A man who has the reputation of being honest and noble and dealing rightly in all of his deeds and all of his conduct and all of his speech. But most importantly, he's a man who's right before God. Stands in the presence of God seen as complete. As right, as welcomed. We know that that means Simeon's a man of faith, right? Because you don't have righteousness apart from faith. That's what we've been studying in Galatians on Wednesday nights. Paul's been hitting that over and over through the book of Galatians. He hits it over and over through the book of Romans. Faith produces righteousness. Righteousness comes by faith. Simeon is a man who's right before God because he's a man of faith. Second thing that Luke points out about Simeon, he's devout. He is dedicated and committed to God. He has dedicated his life. He's dedicated his heart. He's dedicated his mind to the word of God, to the service of God. Everything about Simeon's life has been wrapped up in being obedient to God. That's where his delight is at. That's where his passion is found. That's what he spends his time doing. His leisurely activities are dedicating himself to God. He's a man devout in his faith to God. He's also, number three, a man who's patient. You notice in verse 25, he's waiting for the consolation of Israel. Uh, as, a, as a human being, I've always struggled with that phrase, the consolation of Israel, because I go back to my uh, basketball playing days and as a competitor, and we would think of the consolation side of the tournament, which meant you weren't in the championship, so that meant you're a loser. And so I would always come to this point in the passage and read that Simeon's waiting for the loser of Israel. I always have to overcome that mentality. That's not obviously not what he's getting at in referring to this moment as the consolation of Israel. The word consolation, instead of meaning loser, actually means comforting and consoling. That's pretty obvious, the origin of the word. Anna will actually use a similar phrase, or Luke will use a similar phrase in verse 38, referring to Anna, that she speaks of Christ to all who are waiting for the redemption of Israel. Those are two similar phrases trying to communicate the same thing that means that they're waiting for the coming Messiah. They're waiting for the promise to be fulfilled from God. They're waiting for, as you'll see um, in verse 26, the Lord's Christ. Waiting for God to send that Redeemer. And so here we find Simeon is a patient man waiting for the coming of Messiah, of the Messiah who is the consolation of Israel, the comfort of Israel. That produces from his devout and righteous heart. He believes in God's promises, doesn't he? He's waiting faithfully for God to reveal his word. He knows God will keep his word. Luke describes a man here who is such an exception to the cold, religious, legalistic mentality of the day. He's describing a man who's the exception to the hypocritical religious system of the day. We know what we're talking about there. He's so different from the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the high priest and those who are in charge of the Jewish legal system of the time, isn't he? 
Those people Jesus will look at eventually and say, you are whitewashed tombs. You appear to be right before God, but on the inside, you're full of dead men's bones. You're self-righteous and your soul condemned to hell. Simeon is so standing in contrast to those people. He's not a person who's concerned with self-righteousness and external righteousness. He's a man who's concerned with being patient, waiting upon God's faithfulness to send the Messiah. And so what we learn from Simeon's life already is that what he gets to experience here in the temple, testifying to Christ there in verses 29 through 32, it's not something that's given to the wicked. A privilege like this is only something given to the righteous and the devout, those who have given themselves to God, right? It's not the Pharisees who meet Christ in the temple. It's the faithful. It's not the Sadducees who get to welcome Christ into the temple. It's those who trust in God. It's not the high priest who gets to present Christ to the Lord. It's, our, it's those who are committed to following God in faith. It's what we learn from Simeon. But there's a fourth thing mentioned there in verse 25 that Luke tells us about this man. The Holy Spirit was upon him. That's the most important point of Simeon's life. And that's a rarity for this time, for the time that Simeon is living in, because this is before the new covenant ministry work of the Holy Spirit. What I mean by that is Simeon's living in the old covenant work of the Holy Spirit, whereas we know in the whole Old Testament, the Holy Spirit didn't come and remain on people like he does now. He came and went, and he certainly wasn't on every believer. That's something that will happen about 34 years from this passage and this time that we're reading of now where the Spirit will come upon all believers and remain upon all believers. Yet, Simeon has a unique privilege from God, a unique blessing, grace from God to have the Holy Spirit upon him. And the way that Luke uses this phrase is it's not just that the Holy Spirit is coming and going upon him. He uses it to refer to the fact that the Holy Spirit is remaining with Simeon. So unlike everybody else in the time, unlike everybody else in the first two chapters, Zechariah and Elizabeth and John the Baptist, who has the Holy Spirit come upon them after a certain point in their life, Simeon has the Holy Spirit remaining with him. And it's not just that the Holy Spirit is upon him. Look in verse 26. The Holy Spirit is active in his life. He walks with the Holy Spirit. He's led by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit reveals things to him. The Holy Spirit will lead him into the temple. It's the Holy Spirit who will speak, speak through him a prophecy concerning this Jesus. The Holy Spirit is not just with Simeon. He is actively working in his life. Simeon is a unique man in Israel at this point in time. And that's the significance of him involved in this passage in verse 26. The significance of his relationship with the Holy Spirit is that the Spirit of God revealed to him he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Here's a man who would not die, told by God he would not taste death until he had seen the Messiah the consolation of Israel. 
As such, Simeon's whole life has been wrapped up in that promise. And it has produced with him an eager expectation and an excited hope and a patient waiting for God to fulfill his word to him. That's the kind of man we find meeting Jesus in the temple. Righteous man, a devout man, a patient man, a man led by the Spirit of God who's produced in him an eager expectation for the moment he now experiences. So that's the person of Simeon. Now in verse 28, let's look at the action of Simeon. Really, verse 28 and 29, we'll look at together here. The action of Simeon is that he takes up Jesus in his arms. That's a rather blessed privilege for him. His faithfulness and his Patience, his devoutness has finally paid off for him and the highest privilege possible in his life. Here in verse 28 and 29, Simeon receives the highest honor possible. He gets to look into the face of God. And he doesn't just see God with his eyes. He holds God in his arms. Simeon has the Savior of the world cradled against his chest. The Savior of the world lays in his arms. Those things that his eyes are now seeing, the thing that his arms are now holding, is what his heart has desired for so long. Simeon, the consolation of Israel, is finally here and you are holding him. This church has been his heart's desire. This has been his greatest delight, his greatest treasure his greatest longing and God has graciously blessed him with it Simeon is so overwhelmed by seeing Christ it is as it is as if he cannot help but to extend his arms and snatch him from Mary and Joseph to hold on to him he's so gripped with Christ he reaches out for him with excitement and expectation that describes many of our salvation experiences right Come face to face with Christ and we cannot help but run to Him and snatch Him up. Simeon has that privilege. He has that honor. Those things that his heart has longed for for so long being fulfilled here in verse 28 and 29. And in verse 28 and 29, Simeon in his testimony actually reveals to us what he is feeling and what he is thinking about this very moment. The first thing he's feeling that we see First thing he's thinking is that he blesses God. It's the only reaction that he can think of in this moment. I must bless God. It's another way of saying that he gives thanks to God, that he is praising God. And it's safe for us to say that he's doing this in a celebratory nature. He's perhaps even overcome with God's goodness. What he experiences here in verse 28 and 29, seeing Christ taking him up in his arms, what he experiences here is the overflow of his heart's desires. You know Simeon would cry out with the psalmist, my cup runneth over from the good things of God. He blesses God for his experience. But he also 
rejoices in God's faithfulness, doesn't he? You look there at the end of verse 29, and he's referring all that's happening to uh, the word of the Lord. All this is happening according to your word. Keep fulfilling your promise to me. Simeon is so moved by God's faithfulness to keep his word. That should be the same of us, correct? Shouldn't we be struck with God's faithfulness? Shouldn't we always be aware of God's faithfulness in our lives? That marks our Christianity. Every good thing in our lives. God's faithfulness to us. Every promise fulfilled. Every answered prayer. Every moment of protection. Every moment of discipline is God's faithfulness to our lives to raise us up as holy to protect us to watch over us to provide over us and when we get into heaven we will see yet again the theme of God's faithfulness to maintain his word to save us Simeon is struck here again with God's faithfulness and he rejoices in it and for him God's faithfulness is as common as breathing and eating his whole life's journey has been marked by it And for him and for us, church, it should never get old. We should never get tired of God's faithfulness. Be like Simeon. Rejoice in God's faithfulness. He also reveals to us that he delights in his position to God. His relation to God. Look in verse 29. He refers to himself as God's servant. could also say bond servant. A better way of saying it is slave. I'm your slave, God. That's how he refers to himself, and that is his delight. That is his contentment. And there is no delight, I will tell you this morning, there is no delight like the delight of knowing that you are God's and he is your master. For he is a good master that protects and provides and lavishes good things upon his servants. Simeon rejoices in that. But most notably, and telling us how he feels in verse 28 and 29 about this moment of taking up Christ, most importantly, we see he is ready for death. Simeon is so moved by this moment, so moved by this child. He cries out to die. Notice the words he uses there in verse 29. You're letting your servant depart and peace, letting depart in peace. Letting signifies that Simeon sees death as a gift. You're granting it to me. You're giving it to me. What I desire to die and be with you. You're letting me depart. It's not an ominous word. It's not a dark word. It's not a fearful word. It's a word that indicates just a leaving. You're allowing me to leave this wretched life to be with you. And he uses the word peace. Who uses the word peace in reference to death? Those who trust in God. Death is simply a journey to get to where I long to be. Death is my heart's desire. Simeon is ready to cast off the bonds of this life and enter into his eternal peace with God. As if there is nothing greater than what he's experiencing now. Nothing's going to top this moment. There's nothing on this side of heaven that will be greater than what I'm experiencing right now in holding Jesus. Take me now. Let me go. Let me be with you, God. Simeon's an old man. 
and will probably not live to see Christ crucified. This is the highlight of his life. He doesn't need to see anything else. Take me, Lord. Let me go be with you. He embraces and he welcomes death like a joyful friend who's going to carry him across the river to meet with God. He speaks of death in terms of peace and in terms of joy. He speaks of death as one who is seeking rest and release from bondage. This child has sparked within him a desire to be, as the author of Hebrews describes it, a far better country. This man, Simeon, now that his eyes have seen what he's been longing for, now turns his longing to an eternal home, to the dwelling place of those who are redeemed. And it's a subtle truth that I would point out to you this morning. Eyes that look upon the Savior ultimately look to glory with Him in heaven. We still ask the question, though, and I want to explicitly answer it for us this morning. What is it that makes this righteous and devout man rejoice in God and long for death? So what is it that could move him to give up this life in peace and know that there's nothing on this side of heaven greater than what he's experiencing now? What exactly about his testimony here is going to move him in such a way to give up this life and respond to God in praise and in blessing. And it's not just the child Jesus, but it's who the child is. It's this confession in verse 30, 31 and 32. It's his testimony about who Jesus is that marks his joy, his heart with a joy and a longing for his eternal home. And let me just tell you on a side note, so many people have gotten Jesus wrong haven't they? So many people today get Jesus wrong. But here's a man who gets him right. And if you want to know who Christ is, listen intently to Simeon's testimony. He says there in verse 30, and he exclaims with passion in his heart, my eyes have seen God's salvation. That's his testimony to who Christ is. God's salvation And it's a remarkable statement in two ways. First, it's remarkable because he makes this statement about a child. To a child. For us, that's not that remarkable. We know the rest of the gospel story. We know who this child grows up to be. We know who this child is in the beginning. He's the Son of God. The one going to the cross. The great Redeemer. The great promised one. But for those who are around Simeon in the temple, they think this man is crazy. How can you look at a child and call him God's salvation? How can you look at this infant and call him salvation at all? And yet it is that truth in and of itself that sparks Simeon's desire to be with God. This child that I hold is no ordinary child being presented in the temple. It is the salvation of God. Second, second thing about this remarkable statement, Simeon says that he sees salvation and i would ask how can you see something that really can't be seen salvation is internal and spiritual how does he describe that he sees god's salvation and it is simple because jesus is the personification of god's redemption for mankind 
Jesus is the clearest and accurate picture of God's desire to save sinners. Simeon can look in the face of Christ and when he does, he sees God's love, he sees God's mercy, he sees God's patience, His justice, His grace that's going to extend out upon all people. When Simeon looks into the face of Jesus, he knows that God will redeem the lost of the world just as He has promised. Here in my arms is the proof. That's who Simeon looks at. That's what his eyes are gazing at. The salvation of God. And to understand the significance of what Simeon is understanding, let us describe for a moment what God's salvation is. I can say it in the most simplest sentence that is also at the same time the most profound sentence. Salvation is the forgiveness of sin. That is the most basic, foundational truth of what it means that God would save sinners. He forgives them of their sins. But that is the most profound statement a man can utter. Because we know the seriousness of sin. Sin sent Christ to the cross. Sin is what separates man from God. Sin is what created or corrupted this creation of God that we now live in where disease and violence run rampant. Sin is what scorns the law of God. Sin is what makes for all the evil in the world and in your own heart and in your mind everything wrong with the place we live in is because of sin. And yet God would forgive sin. Such an offense as that. To look, you realize out of all creation, humanity is the only one, the only thing created, that looked back to the Creator and said no. Everything else joyfully submits The planets maintain their places. The ocean maintains its boundaries. Gravity exists because God says it would. And everything obeys God to the letter except for the pinnacle creation, humanity. And yet God, again, would forgive sin. He would look over the evil and the rebellion that is within us. He would pass over all of our disobedience if we would but believe in Him, trust in Him, repent and And have faith in Him for salvation. God's salvation is the taking of those that are broken, that are dead, that are unworthy, that are guilty, that are enemies of God, and it is making them right, making them alive, making them valuable, making them innocent, and making them children of God. Salvation is not just a forgiving of sin. It is also a release from sin. For all those in salvation can now have victory over sin. And all those in the salvation of God know that when we die, we are forever free from sin. Salvation is a forgiving and a releasing of all of our sin, past, present, and future. It extends to the internal and the external. It is a complete and thorough cleansing of our wicked, wicked hearts. 
God's salvation strikes us at the core of who we are in forgiveness, in a washing, in a redeeming. That's the consolation of Israel that Simeon's waited for. Not a, not a release from the Roman government, the oppressive government over Israel like everybody else had thought. Simeon has been waiting for a release from sin. I want to be with God now. Your, your consolation is here. Your Savior is here. The Redeemer is here. Let me now be with God. Let me now unite with God. How wondrous a thought that God would forgive our sins, right? Isn't that a truth that should constantly grip us in our souls? Isn't that a truth that should motivate every single one of us to evangelism? There should never be a, a claim among God's people of a lack of evangelism, right? Right? For those of us who know redemption and know the cleansing of our wicked hearts, we should be the most motivated to tell those we care about that God will forgive sin in Christ. What Simeon holds here is the eternal, all-encompassing fix for humanity. You realize the world spends its pursuit. So many people spend their lives looking for peace and satisfaction and fulfillment and purpose. And because of sin, they will never find it. But in Christ, it is all found and given freely. This child is the forgiveness of our sins. He's the salvation of God. But Simeon doesn't stop there about this testimony of this child. Look in verse 31. He's not just the salvation of God. He's a salvation that is public. He's a salvation that is wide open. He is a salvation that is clearly portrayed. He says, my eyes have seen the salvation of God that has been prepared in the presence of all peoples. It isn't a hidden salvation. It's not a secret salvation. It's a public salvation done right in the light of day, done right in the face of humanity that all would know God longs to save us. God's not hiding it from the world. He prepares His salvation where all people can see it. Christ lived a life right in front of us all. God gave us His Word to read of the life of Christ that took place right in front of humanity. Church, just as the sun comes up on the face of the earth so that all may see it. So too God has arisen His salvation where everyone can look and see it and be saved. God has not hidden what He intended for all mankind. We don't have to search in hidden places for salvation. And for the believer, isn't that so evident? Our lives, everywhere we go, we see God's Shining grace, radiantly blinding us in the eyes. Those who walk closely with God, who commune with God regularly, cannot help but to see God's grace everywhere they go. Every breath they take, they know God sustains them by His grace. Every unbeliever they encounter in the hallway, every other unbeliever they encounter in the workplace, at Walmart, driving down the street, they know as a soul that God is sustaining in this life, hoping that they would be saved. 
The only reason unbelievers don't die right now in this moment is because God is being gracious that some of them may still be saved. His patience and His kindness is meant, according to Paul, to lead us to repentance, not to be taken advantage of. You realize, church, that if Christ came back today, literally thousands of people in Weatherford would be cast into hell like a lightning bolt. You realize today, don't you, that if there was a mass attack or a natural disaster in Weatherford, thousands of people would enter into eternity into punishment. This isn't a secret salvation. This is a salvation that we must be proclaiming. A salvation that we must tell the world about. That we must pray to God about. Please God, lift the veil off of their eyes. Their eyes that are blinded by the lust of their flesh. Their eyes that are blinded by the pride of their hearts. Lift that veil. Let them see your glorious salvation shining. The very public nature of this salvation of God, the very fact that He prepares it in the presence of all peoples, stresses God's desire for people to believe in the gospel and be saved. Simeon still has more to say about this salvation. Let me get through verse 32 this morning. He describes this salvation as a light in verse 32. A light that dawns in our hearts to give life. Jesus says the same thing about himself in John 8. It's interesting to me that Simeon says it about it at the early parts of his life. Christ repeats it at the end of his life. John 8 verse 12 again. Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That's what this salvation is. That's who Simeon holds in his arms. The light of salvation. And it's a light that extends everywhere. Just as the sun's light shines upon the face of the earth and reaches all the corners of the earth, so too God's salvation is a far-reaching salvation, isn't it? What God has promised about His salvation, Isaiah 49 Verse 6, I will make you as a light for the nations, plural, that my salvation may, what, reach to the ends of the earth. That's what Simeon is saying here. This is salvation, it's a light. And it's a light first for revelation to the Gentiles. To reveal something to them. This is the first time that Gentiles in Scripture are put before Jews. But Luke does it and Simeon does it to stress the importance of the gospel going not just to God's chosen people, Israel, but to all people of the whole earth. And it's a light of salvation that reveals to them, one, the disease of their hearts called sin, and also revealing to them that the Savior has come to save them from such sin. This means something for us that we must take away this morning concerning this child in Simeon's arms. It means that he is a light of salvation that shines even to the unbelieving and pagan world. It's a light of salvation that shines even to those who do not know that God exists. 
Every atheist that walks on the dirt of this earth, this salvation is sent to them. Not just those who don't believe, don't know, but even those who reject God. This salvation signs to them. It is for all of those sinners. It is for idolatrous people. People who worship a false God. Such as Abraham. It's a light of salvation that extends to the vilest of the vile. The worst of the worst. To make known God's reconciliation in Christ. Salvation that goes to the lawbreakers. The salvation that goes to those who need a spiritual physician. Salvation that goes to the unrighteous. Isn't that who Christ said I came for? I came for the righteous. I came for the unrighteous. No one is too far gone to be saved. Amen? Isn't that right? Uncle Joe and Aunt June aren't too far gone to be saved. It's a salvation that extends across the world. So let us never say that God's salvation isn't for anyone and everyone. Even the Jew here holding Jesus in the temple knows it goes beyond the Jewish people. So it matters not your ethnicity. It matters not your background, your heritage. It matters not your ancestry. It matters not your particular sins. God has made a way for all people to be saved in this child. He is a salvation for all people. We are not saying that the whole world will be saved. We are saying that anyone in the world can be saved. So we, as Simeon, we, church, ought to be struck with the same celebration and the same kind of passion for this child. We're to be moved to explain and proclaim this person, Jesus. For the light of God's salvation extending to the Gentiles is not just important for our own salvation because we are Gentiles, it's important for every person you ever care about knowing God. Praise God, this salvation is a light for revelation to the Gentiles. Simeon continues on here. He's not done explaining this great salvation. He says it's also a light of salvation that is for the glory of God's people Israel. And that's understandable. The Savior comes from them. He is a part of their heritage. He's from the line of their ancestry. They will see glory in its truest sense. This child's going to live among them. He's going to eat among them. He's going to teach them. He's going to walk among them. He'll be with them for 33 years. God dwells in the presence of Israel. And salvation because of that will be offered, has been offered to them first. Because God kept a promise to them. They will witness the glory of God firsthand. And they will always be honored for it. What is Simeon saying about this child in relation to Israel? Simeon is saying this. This child I hold in my arms, he is the glory of Israel. It's not the nation's treasure. It's not the temple. It's not the nation's victories in battle. It's not the nation's influence in the world dwelling in the fertile crescent. It's this child that's the glory of Israel. This babe in my arms, it is Jesus. I so desperately want to keep going. I so desperately want to move on here to uh, 
Joseph and Mary and why they marvel. Because the story's not done and it's so impactful. But I will try to get you to come back to church tonight by saying that I will finish tonight. So please, if you want to know the rest of this testimony of Christ, be back tonight. Because as you can tell already from Simeon's life, this is no ordinary child he holds in his arms, right? This is a child that moves him to passion. Why does Simeon ask for death? That's what we started out asking. Why is Simeon ready to leave? This child, the salvation he holds in his arms, makes him long for his eternal home with God. For that's where this child will send everyone who believes in him. This child, it's the gateway to heaven. He's the way I get to God. He's my bridge. He's my reconciliation. He is my redemption. And I don't want to wait for his crucifixion. I'm ready to go now. I ask for death. Let me, God. Oh, please, I beg you. Grant me to leave this world in peace. My eyes have seen your salvation. Christ makes every believer long for your eternal home with God. So if you know this Christ, if you know this baby here, if you know Jesus, you have a heavenly outlook on life, don't you? You have an eternal perspective in life. And that means, ultimately, proclaiming this salvation that others may gather with us around the throne of God. Oh God, send the gospel to the people of Japan that they may believe and be with us in heaven. Send the gospel to the people in the Middle East. Send the gospel to our own country, God, that people may know this great salvation you prepared in the presence of all peoples. Let me tell you something here. A statistic I read this, this week. The United States of America is the third largest unchurched population in the world behind China and India. We have countries pouring in believers to be missionaries here because the plethora of churches in every block won't stand up and share the gospel. Let us be moved to passion like Simeon, to a celebratory life like Simeon, to proclaim that God's salvation is here prepared right in front of our faces and it's a salvation that extends to all people, Jew and Gentile alike. When he says Gentiles there, he's referring to the oppressive Roman government. He's referring to the Samaritans. He's referring to the Scythians, the barbarians, and all the other people of the world that have maligned Israel and mocked Israel and persecuted Israel and killed Jews. The gospel extends even to them, says Simeon. There's no one too far gone. There's no one in your family that can't be saved. Take up Simeon's passion. But unbeliever this morning, because I know you're here, unbeliever, why wait? Why not receive this great salvation? What prevents you from becoming a Christian today? Nothing else in the world saves you. Only Jesus. Nothing else can forgive you of sin. That's the great dilemma of humanity. 
It's not being morally good. It's not being right with other people. It's being forgiven of your sins in front of a holy God. And the only way to be forgiven is Christ. Turn, repent, believe and be saved. Hear Paul's words. Behold, today is the day of salvation. Behold, now is a favorable time to turn to God. And be saved. Hear Simeon's testimony. This is no ordinary child. This is the salvation of God. And there is none too far gone to be saved. All may be saved. So you have two options this morning, church. One, repent and believe and be saved. Experience this salvation. And two, repent for not sharing this salvation. And develop a passion in your heart for telling the world about this Christ. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for Simeon's testimony. But I most importantly thank you that you came for us. That you were born in the likeness of flesh. That you humbled yourself to the point of death. Even death on a cross. That though you were in the form of God. You did not count equality with God. A thing to be grasped. You became like us. Dwelt among us. All for our benefit. Lord we know because of your word. We know that what Simeon has to say right here is spot on with who you are. I pray that if there are any, any here this morning, God, who do not know that in their heart, you would pierce them like a sword this morning. That the lost may find this great salvation. You're not just a good teacher. You're not just a good man. You're so much more. You are our redemption. And I praise you. And Lord, for those believers here this morning whom my heart longs for, I pray you would impress this in their souls that your thumbprint would be in their hearts from pressing this truth so deep within. They would be refreshed. They would be motivated. They would be encouraged. They would take courage to share the same testimony of Simeon. My heart's eyes have seen the salvation of God. We thank you for sending the gateway, the key to the gate for us to be with you for eternity. We love you and praise you and worship you now in song. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray all this. Amen.